On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Andrew Spencer about stewardship. So we cover all sorts of ideas like what does it mean to talk about things like creation care? How does that relate to stewardship? What is the theology of stewardship and creation care? How do we think about that well? Does Orthodox evangelical theology really lead to an ethics of creation care? What is the importance of hope? For creation care. Why should we even care about the world if it's just going to burn? Isn't it really just like shuffling chairs on the Titanic? Why is it so common that many people seem to move to the left when they actually care about creation? What is what is going on here? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, We think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. Uh, We are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm joined by Chris Wozniki. And we are uh, thrilled to have you all here listening today. If you're new to the show, I always like to remind everyone, whether you're new or you're old, to give sort of a cast a little vision for what we're trying to do with the London Lyceum, particularly the podcast is to encourage and cultivate and create an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we think that the internet especially has sort of formed us in ways that are not healthy or good. Um, They formed us, those of us who actually care about deep thinking, they formed us in vicious ways to be total jerks. And we say, no, that's not the Christian way. We should actually care about charity and be curious about why other people think the way they do. So instead of pulling out a rifle for the heretics that are out there, we want to say, well, well, wait a second, let's hold on. Just tell me a little bit about yourself and why you're where you're at, where you're at, why you're there. And then on the flip side, we also want to encourage, the, when we started the podcast five years ago or whatever, uh, we looked around at the Baptist landscape and a lot of people just don't care about thinking and they almost see it as a vice. It's uh, knowledge is what puffs you up and it's, it's uh, what the Pharisees do. And so we don't want to have anything to do with that. And we wanted to cast an alternative vision to say, no, you can think well. You just have to do it Christianly. And so we want to pursue these things, and hopefully you catch that vision and you see that in all of our conversations because we talk about all sorts of stuff all across the map. Um, Sometimes you'll disagree. Sometimes you'll agree. Sometimes you'll get frustrated. Whatever you're at, we want you just to appreciate and keep coming back and make you think about things in a different way. Now, today I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Andrew Spencer. We're going to be talking about his brand new book on stewardship, uh, what creation care and related topics. It's going to be a, a lot of fun. Uh, I think this is a topic that, for whatever reason, it, it automatically sort of like puts up those like, I don't know, like guardrails or something. Like if you start talking about environmental care or creation care or anything related to that, it's automatically like, well, this is an, a good or this is a, a bad. And it's very extreme. So I, I'm excited to, to sort of walk through some of these things. But before we do that, um, Spencer, as you go, tell me a little bit about yourself and then what was it that drew you to thinking about this topic and ultimately writing a book on it? Yeah, so uh, I live up in southeast Michigan. Uh, I am uh, a an editor for the Gospel Coalition, um, but I have spent over 15 years of my life working in commercial and military nuclear power. I was a submarine officer. Um, which is actually how I kind of got into the environmental ethics question, the creation care question. Um, So was an English major in college, uh, went to the Naval Academy, ended up in the submarine force uh, as a prospective nuclear engineer officer, uh, trained 
operators within the the Navy as part of my uh, my professional job there, uh, and operated uh, a reactor. Um, when I got out of the Navy, I uh, was headed up to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary to attend, get an MDiv, um, ended up working my way through a PhD. But when I brought my family up, my choices for employment were instructor at a commercial nuclear power plant, the, the Sharon Harris plant that's down in New Hill, just south of Raleigh, uh, had a position open, or I could have been part-time at the home improvement store. Um, one of those pays the bills and one doesn't. And so I chose the one that paid the bills, thinking that I would find something else or, or move along. And as it turned out, I, I actually really enjoyed uh, the work of being an instructor at a nuclear power plant. I enjoyed learning about how the systems operate, how they all work together, and, and helping people to understand that. So I did that for five years. Then I was on staff at Southeastern for a few years. I uh, ended up uh, going to Oklahoma Baptist University to help them through accreditation. And then I came back to uh, commercial nuclear power where I worked my way up to a manager at the Fermi 2 nuclear power plant. And then now I uh, edit book reviews for the TG, TGC website. Now, the technological background, that kind of you know nuclear power background is what opened the opportunity for... Uh, digging into creation care, uh, because as I was looking at uh, studying ethics uh, at Southeastern, um, one place that I felt that uh, evangelicals and Baptists in particular weren't doing as much work as they could have been was in the question of how we care for creation. Um, we had either kind of rejected it and pushed the question away, or there were answers where um, there is a tendency, especially among those who work in creation care, to kind of move to the left uh, and sometimes abandon uh, orthodox doctrinal positions. And so I saw that tension and saw an opportunity to, to kind of write in that area and to continue to study in that area uh, and help the church think through more carefully um, just a lot of the volume of information that we see on that question. Thanks, Andrew. Um, so you, you've used creation care as a phrase a couple of times uh, when you're telling us a little bit about your background and your story. Could you just explain what you mean by creation care? The closest analog to it is environmental ethics. And, you know, it, in one sense, that's what I'm doing is environmental ethics. But when people use the word environment, um, that usually means out there right? It's, it's a concern for, uh, you know, trees and birds and animal populations um, that's outside of what we might call nature, assuming that nature is non-human things that exist out there, living things. Um, but the reality that God provides in the text of scripture is that we are part of, we're part of nature, really we're part of creation. And so by using the term creation care, it brings the idea of stewardship into it, and it brings the human aspect into it, not only from the ways that we impact the creation around us by the resources we use and the things that we discard and that sort of thing, but also because creation care has to take into account what are the human costs to preservation activities that we might take in order to solve some other, you know, environmental problem. Yeah, so it sounds like it's definitely related to ethics, environmental ethics, but there's also a theological component. Um, where does the theology fit into a theology of creation care? So creation care is a, it's a, it's a theocentric function, right? Our, our ultimate concern is to glorify God in what we do. 
Um, and the way I approach creation care is through four basic theological questions. Um, and this is what I call the theological perspective for environmental ethics or theological perspective for creation care. Um, and, and the four key questions that everyone has to answer that does anything with questions about creation and environment is, uh, first of all, what is our source of authority, right? So for us as Christians, the primary authority is, of course, Scripture. Um, but we don't discount information that we get from, uh, you know, revelation around us, natural revelation. We get science, uh, experience. Those things all feed into our understanding, but we put scripture at the head um, so that we don't violate norms within scripture in order to achieve another end that science might say is good. Um, so that's the first point. The second point is uh, we have to attack the question of what is the value of creation? Um, why is it good? Uh, is it good instrumentally? Is it good in and of itself? As if, you know, if we launched creation into space with nothing, no God or anything else around it, would it still have value? Or is it, does it have value in as much as it glorifies the one who designed it? Uh, and that's the way I approach that question. Um, then we, we have to ask that theological question, what are humans for and what is our appropriate place within the created order? Uh, and scripture answers that question, uh, giving us dominion or stewardship uh, within the created order. And then finally, we have to ask the question, which is another strong theological question, what is the end goal or the end state of creation? right? Um, because whether it's going to burn up or whether it's going to be totally renewed or whether it's just going to continue as it is forever and always, um, that affects the way that we treat uh, all the world around us. Okay. So you uh, sort of made a, a similarity between dominion and stewardship. I have seen over the last year or more a significant number of conservative voices in America wanting to retrieve like a, a robust dominion mandate where it's like very masculine. And I think they might want to eschew the idea of stewardship from that definition. So maybe walk me through why you would say stewardship is a stand-in or a similar word in some ways to what the dominion uh, sort of terminology is, is entailing there in scripture. Well, you know, before we had the Great Commission, we had the Great Commandment uh, in Genesis chapter 1, 27, 28, the cultural mandate um, to, to uh, be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over, uh, over the, 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 the earth, right, and, and everything in it. Um, then we look in, in Genesis chapter 2 when we see that particular fo f zoomed in um, description of the creation account where God has Adam name. Uh, the animals. Uh, and, you know, Genesis tell, uh, tells us that God put Adam and Eve into, really Adam into the garden, and then he gave him Eve. Um, but Adam into the garden in order to uh, cultivate and keep it uh, is, is, is how uh, I read uh, that phrase in Genesis. And, and so that's woven in there. Now, the church for a long time, because the King James translates it this way, translates you know, took dominion as, as the standard. Um, that word has largely been abandoned, uh, especially among, you know, uh, environmentally concerned uh, Christians, because uh, dominion can sometimes be confused with domination. 
Um, and in fact, we just look at the world and sometimes even Christians have exercised dominion in a very dominating way uh, without thinking about, uh, you know, if I, if I cut all the uh, trees down off this hillside, how am I going to allow, uh, you know, hillside erosion to take place, uh, which is going to create problems down the line and uh, just ecolog ec ecological issues that, that can be caused based on careless, um, careless stewardship or careless domination of the world. But what we see in Genesis is a picture of um, Adam and Eve being called to cultivate, to, to care for, to steward. And they're allowed to use it, right? Because they're allowed to eat from any of the trees except for the one. Uh, but they're supposed to do that in an appropriate manner uh, so that they're, they're um, demonstrating that cultural mandate and, and flourishing within that. So I bring those ideas together because I think the scriptural world uh, dominion uh, relates to and is modified or controlled by that idea of stewardship. We don't fundamentally own it, but we've given, been given license to use it in a responsible manner. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I just look at the way the text deals with it, and I think that's helpful. Yeah, so uh, you've referred to the, using the text quite a bit uh, and the importance of uh, grounding creation care in theology. Would you say that, I guess, a orthodox or historically representative evangelical theology pushes us towards a theology of creation care? Absolutely. Um, when we look at who the primary champions of creation care or environmental ethics are in the world around us, right? We typically think about materialistic scientists. Um, they don't really often believe that there is anything out there beyond that that w which we can kind of empirically measure. Um, so, in fact, there's very little reason within that framework of ethics that assumes that there's no God, um, no supernatural in this world, for us to actually care about the environment. Because we should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Um, there's no real strong justification for um, a biocentricity, a concern for life, or future generations in that. Whereas as Christians, uh, because God made the earth, because the earth is the Lord's, um, that gives us an obligation to care for it, uh, because we know that it is ultimately his, and like stewards, we are, we're going to be held to account for the way that we have treated the creation in ways that we can control. Um, and so it's, it's within that idea of who created all things and who owns all things, that doctrine of creation uh, that drives the orthodox perspective toward uh, creation care. So why then, you, you mentioned, I think, at the very beginning almost, where it's a common move when someone begins to care about creation, they move to the left. Why is that the case? Like, what what's going on there? Is there some sort of, like, I don't, I don't know, a hidden gem that's like you, you discover it and then or a pill? I don't know what, what the kids talk about these days where you, where you find this and discover it, and now you suddenly you're, you're on the left where you used to be on the right. Like, what is it that – why is that happening? Um, there's an article out there. I, I can't remember who the author was, but um, it was uh, described environmental ethics as uh, – as a, a basically Calvinism without God, um, because you get the idea of justice and duty in there, uh, and you know there's uh, deep concern, and yet there's no deity to be responsible for ultimately. Um, 
historically, and, and Mark Stoll d- does uh, traces this out in, in his book. He's a historian from Texas Tech. Uh, he traces it out in a book called in, um, Inherit the Holy Mountain, um, where the mid-20th century major leaders in the environmental movement were all kind of mainline Protestants who had had, you know, deeply religious uh, childhoods, and then they ended up leading the environmental movement. Uh, Evan Berry, in a book um, uh, on on, uh, environmentalism in the U.S., traces this movement as well. Um, But he goes back and he shows that actually the way that um, environmental ethics was pitched in the U.S., particularly in the 20th century. It didn't originate in the 20th century, but that's when it became kind of popular. Um, it what used very uh, theological language. Salvation was found uh, in nature, and you could experience God in this kind of deistic way out in nature. And so that has permeated a lot of the discussion. Uh, in fact, that's why the resistance to environmentalism among conservative Christians goes beyond uh, even 1972, the le- legalization of abortion and things like that. Um, it goes back deeper to the way the conversation was held. Uh, when you have John Muir, uh, you know, who grew up, some people say Calvinistic, but he actually grew up in the Disciples of Christ uh, and teaching people that, you know, you could experience a sense of the transcendent and worship out in creation. Um, those things tainted it. So what happens is that people who start out with a kind of, you know, conservative orthodox theology sometimes, um, without having had perhaps a conversion experience or been deeply rooted in in strong discipleship, um, will hear some of that language and see the opportunity for redemption, for some of the biblical themes that are very inspirational um, within this other movement, and it kind of draws your attention that way. That's one piece. And then the second piece, which is much shorter, is simply um, because there aren't as many alternatives that are strongly orthodox uh, to execute creation care, uh, you end up hanging with people that are not, uh, and that tends to affect you over time. And so I think those two things are really the major drivers behind uh, that leftward drift. Mm. Uh, You mentioned John Muir. Um, I'm out in California and go to Yosemite all the time. So John Muir is kind of like a a really important figure out here. Um, he he gravitates towards a sort of panentheism. And I, if you don't want to address this, that's okay. But do you think, um, or what reasons would you give for a classical theistic doctrine of God grounding creation care over panentheism? Because I feel like some of these figures that you mentioned that were sort of mainline or historically... Uh, kind of loosely associated with Christianity, kind of drifted towards a panentheistic understanding of God, and that grounded the relationship to creation. Um, what would you say to somebody who who thinks like, okay, if I want to care about creation, I have to go in that direction, and I can't keep a traditional theistic account of who God is? So that's a really good observation, um, and and the two questions are str- are closely connected. Um, because Roger Olson, when he deals with his um, kind of summary view of uh, liberalism and liberal theology, talks about one of the pillars of um, liberal theology is that it tends to to see the world pantheistically or panentheistically. 
Um, and there, you know, there's a subtle difference between the two. One is that God is the, uh, the world is God, God is the world, right? That's pantheism versus God is in the world, um, kind of supernaturalizes the rocks and the trees and that sort of thing, which is panentheism. Um, now that's been a movement from the beginning. You saw that, see that in, uh, even in 1967 in Lynn White's essay on the historic roots of, uh, our environmental crisis, uh, he, says we need to be more pantheistic, uh, which has moved people in that direction. The The big problem with pantheism is, um, well, I mean, it's theological, but the big problem practically in our environmental ethics with, uh, with pantheism or panentheism is it makes any sort of triage or decision-making uh, next to impossible. Um, so some environmentalists uh, environmental ethicists will descri uh, describe creation or nature as having intrinsic value. Um, and intrinsic value, not to get too philosophical or technical on this, basically means that the thing has value in and of itself and for its own sake. Um, and actually creation doesn't have value in and of itself for its own sake. It has value because there's a creator who created all things, who sustains all things, uh, even as, as things continue to exist. So when you turn toward pantheism or panentheism, uh, and you say that, uh, that everything has intrinsic value, that it's, you know, uh, imbued with value apart from its usefulness or its value to a third party God, then you now, how do you decide if you can cut down a tree in order to build a hospital? Um, how do you decide if you can build a house? Uh, because if that has intrinsic value, then at some level, if everything's equal, then I've got to make a decision somehow. I'm going to build a house. I'm going to cut down the tree. I have to violate my first principles and basically decide they don't work. Um, so that's why it doesn't work. Now, why do people feel that way? I think it's because there's a third level of value in there. Between instrumental, which says a thing has value only for what it is useful for, typically useful for me, and that intrinsic level, and that's inherent value. Um, C.I. Lewis, who is a pragmatic philosopher uh, in the, uh, the early 20th century, um, wrote a book on value, uh, and he, he exposes three, these three levels. Uh, and I, I think it's a helpful framework. Um, and that inherent value level that he describes gives us the ability to make decisions. Because now, um, as we uh, evaluate, uh, do we cut down that tree, we're asking a different set of questions. Um, not just, you know, how sacred is that tree? I, I can't cut it down because it, in some way, is deity, just as I am. I'm asking questions about, uh, am I doing this? Uh, it, does this somehow violate God's law? right? Am I the right person? Do I actually own the tree or own the land th that the tree is on? Uh, and am I doing this just out of wastefulness? Am I doing this to, uh, you know, for selfish gain? Or am I doing this ultimately to glorify God, the one who created the thing? Uh, and so, you know, we, we eschew pantheism for a biblical worldview um, because it enables us to actually interact in a meaningful way with uh, the world around us. So one aspect of the book that I think is unique that I don't often hear when it comes to the topic of creation care is sort of the concept of hope and how we should have hope even for creation. We shouldn't uh, despair over it. Like, give me sort of like the 60,000-foot the, the view of that 
and then sort of like walk me through why, I guess, tell me, I guess, tell me about hope, its relationship to it, why we shouldn't despair. But then I want to know why it is that so many people don't have hope when it comes to creation care. It almost seems like it's a, you know, the world is always ending. No matter who I talk to, the world is ending and it's going to end. It's like just, it's always despair all the time. So just talk to me a little bit about it is the main idea. Well, one reason why uh, despair happens is is because, um, you know, despair moves the needle. Uh, so what what gets attention is an emergency. Uh, and so uh, a continual alarm is, is how you get ratings, how you sell books, um, how you get speaking tours, all those sorts of things. Um, you know, the message of hope that not that things are just going to be okay if we just let them let them be, but that there are real solutions to these things, and that we should be working for what Francis Schaeffer calls substantial healing. Um, you know, that's a harder message. It's not as not quite as popular out there. Part of it, though, comes down to within particularly evangelical Christian circles, um, the idea that it's all going to burn up someday. Uh, and that's an eschatological question. So what's the end goal of creation? Um, you know, is it going to burn up or is it going to continue in some way? I happen to hold a view that uh, creation is going to be purged, but it's going to be renewed. Uh, that the new creation is a new in uh, new in, in fashion, but not a new in type. It's not a whole new creation event out there. That it's a renewed uh, creation. Um, and that it's not a complete annihilation or destruction of creation, uh, as some have described. And I, I trace this out in, in the book. Um, so there's, there's a difference there. Now, on one level, uh, because of my, di- my dissertation, I actually went into uh, explaining how fundamentalists, can, who also who tend to hold this uh, destructionist view of creation um, in the eschatology, they still can have a positive uh, environmental ethics, creation care. Because... Uh, in the end, whether it's going to be destroyed or not, right? That's God's call, uh, and and you know my reading of of the eschatological text could be incorrect, and, and destruction could be the end uh, of of all creation. If I'm wrong, I'm still glorifying God by treating creation very similarly to the way He does. Um, when we see Jesus uh, living on Earth, right? What is He doing? Well, I mean, He's testifying to His deity. Uh, and to his role as Messiah on the earth, how does he do that? He's always pushing back the signs of the curse. He's pushing back, back the effects of the fall. So he's healing diseases. Um, he's, he's stilling the storm uh, that has destructive power. He's doing things that show that he's Lord of creation, but also that show what um, the new creation, I think, is going to look like, where everybody's going to, to be restored in their proper state. So when I look at, you know, whether my eschatology is destructionist or whether it's kind of a, a, a renewal eschatology, um, my perspective is that we all can see that God treated, treated the world uh, in a certain way and that we have, have the ability to do that. So there's room for hope. And in particular, you know, you look at passages like Romans chapter 8, where creation was subjected to futility in hope, right, that that it, the creation groans in anticipation of, of being set free from that futility, knowing that the restoration or the end is going to come when uh, all human flesh is going to be glorified uh, in that way. And so I look at those themes in, in Scripture, and I see that 
whether or not, you know, however that process of destruction and creation, you know, new creation take place, that there's a trajectory where we're called to be like Christ and try and treat um, creation in a way that shows its goodness and points toward the goodness of God. So I agree with you, but I want to I want to ask this question. You tell me what you think. Let's say somebody says, well, I see all these examples, yes, but I also see examples of things like Jesus cursing the fig tree. And so there's this tendency to say, well, you know what, in some respects, we should be okay with not caring for everything in sort of a zero-sum game where everything gets the same sort of treatment. H- how would you respond to something like that? So the fig tree is the hardest uh, question because it is the one uh, example of Jesus kind of doing the directly destructive thing toward nature. Um, But in the end, that's an example of of Christ using creation in order to uh, demonstrate a theological picture, right? So the use of creation is not in and of itself um, uh, sinful. And there's a different set of categories. They, they line up with the value categories. Um, and Augustine talks about this. Aquinas talks about this. They, you know, you see this in um, uh, Jonathan Edwards as well. Um, but the idea is that uh, cre- an object is used when we are um, kind of using it. I hate to use that word, but where it's used appropriately uh, when we're, we're exercising the function that it was determined by God to before, right? Uh, an object is abused where we use it for some other different function than what it is uh, intended for. And so our goal is to use creation and not to abuse creation. And the third category that Augustine gives us, particularly in the um, unchristian teaching or, or unchristian doctrine, is, um, is uh, enjoyment, um, where he argues that, you know, only God is to be enjoyed, uh, and that enjoyment is when you kind of delight in a thing in and of itself. And so if we go back to those value value categories, right, enjoyment would correlate to intrinsic value, use would correlate to inherent value, and then abuse would be purely instrumental value. Okay. So I, I'm curious at this point to, about a little bit of the practical wisdom that you have related to this. So, you know, we can talk abstractly about creation care, but when it comes down to the, like the real world application of it, like what does it look like to really do it well? I, I think of an example. Uh, I'm in Raleigh and I don't know, last year or the year before, the, the, the Center for Faith and Culture there has a grant from the John Templeton Foundation which has funded a ton of opportunities for different people to come in and give talks. And one of those talks was on sort of like environmental care. And and the speaker was talking about carbon credits or something like this. And it gets online and, you know, these, these uh, critics on there were like, look at Southeastern and their, their crazy carbon credit stuff. Um, Unknowingly that, you know, the associate director of the center and me, who's a research fellow at the center, both drive very large trucks is it wrong to drive a large truck that has gasoline or diesel? Like, what does that look like in the real world for the rest of us? Um, so I have gas vehicles. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have an electric vehicle. I do have solar panels on my house, um, and I have wildflowers out in my front yard. Um, I live in more space than what I need, right? So that we all, part of our ability to, um, to live 
is dependent on the the what the market drives and what's available. Um, so we're not called to some sort of like monastic life where we remove ourselves from society, uh, entirely stop bathing, um, and some of the kind of crazy things that uh, that some people do out there. At the same time, we have to recognize that we live exceedingly luxurious lives kind of by global historic standards. Um, you know, uh, we use something like 70 times the amount of energy that, that our, the founders of the country used, right, in order to exist. And, and some of that's very good things, right? I'm glad that we have technology and power available so that, uh, you know, life support happens. And, and uh, I'm glad that we have some of these enterprises. Um, they're good. My basic approach to all of this uh, is that we need to be much more thoughtful in the way that we approach the uh, the resources that we use, the amount of uh, you know the energy uh, that we burn, and and some clear kind of concrete examples of that, right? So if you've bought a house, right, you a lot of people buy a house, especially when the housing market's hot, uh, and you look at a couple pictures online, uh, you go to the house, and if you like it, like if you don't hate it, and it's within your price range, you'd better put an offer on it right away, right? Uh, and that doesn't take into account, you know, what all the things that you might actually think about. You're making a multi-hundred thousand dollar investment into a property, or at least into a mortgage, uh, and you know you haven't taken into account all the things about how far away from uh, work are you, um, what's the R value on the insulation, right? You know how are the windows? You might ask some of those questions, but we have to make kind of instantaneous decisions as as we do that. Well, there that creates problems, uh, and so you know part of our responsibility is to think better, even when it costs us something. Uh, at the end of the day, you got to make, you got to live somewhere. So you got to make some choices, but can we live closer? Um, do we need, you know, 18,000 square feet, or I'm sorry, that'd be huge. 1800 square feet. Uh, when, you know, wouldn't, would 1200, uh, actually fit the needs of our family. When we look at houses in the U.S., right, 40, 50 years ago, um, the average household was about 1,100 uh, square feet. You know, my house was one of the smaller ones I could get in this uh, development uh, that was going up, one of the few that was available when I was looking to buy it, uh, and it was uh, 1,800 square feet, right? It's, it's about the smallest I could get. It's just expanded, well, that in and of itself isn't a problem. I mean, it's great because we have rooms for all the kids and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I've got to heat that. Uh, and then i got to cool that. And then I have to make choices about how I do that, right? So it's winter time right now uh, in southeast Michigan, which means, you know, it's, it's approaching winter. It's late fall. Uh, so it was in the low 30s, uh, high 20s this morning when I got up um, my house. I can choose to keep it at 65 degrees, which is what I do, 63 to 65, uh, or I can choose to try and keep it at 75 or 78, right? One of those requires me to wear a sweatshirt. Um, one of those requires me to, you know, push a button a few times and maybe be more comfortable. In the summertime, I, you know, when it's 100 degrees outside, which it, it gets up here in, in Michigan, I, I have a choice, right? Do I keep my house in the, in the mid-60s like some some people do, uh, or do I keep it at 78, which is enough so that I'm not dead, um, but that I, I can still exist. A better option would be to have a house that has, you know, flow through air, 
but market prices drive those things. So when we make those choices, and this is just one example, right? I made a choice to live pretty close, about uh, 10 miles from work, rather than 50 miles where I could have had, um, you know, larger, uh, larger lot and more space for things. Um, but I make those choices because uh, I'm you know, a mile from church. I'm a quarter mile from the library. I can walk to the library because it's across the park. Uh, instead of having a, a two acre yard that I have to mow, I let the town mow the town park. Uh, and I just enjoy my huge backyard. Uh, and, and by the way, they put a basketball court in it. So these are the kind of choices that we can make and we can control uh, as we think about things that aren't, you know, heroic. Um, they're not over the top. They're not things that cause us to sin in any way. They just cause us to be more thoughtful. And in the end, the other piece of this is that a lot of these choices that are ecologically wise are also financially wise. And so by getting a sm the smallest house I, I could, basically, that was available, uh, that was in about the right location, that was reasonably close, right... I have to heat it less. I have to spend less. I'm closer to work, so I have to burn less gas to get there. Uh, and, and all those things add up that enable me to support missions in a way that I might not be able to if I had a larger mortgage because I had a larger house and larger bills and, you know, all those things. So your work in the nuclear sphere, it, should we be getting rid of nuclear power plants? Is that caring for the creation poorly that we have these things or are they actually um, helpful in some ways? So I, I'm a nuclear advocate, um, not, not shocking. Uh, you know, I did spend 15 years or so uh, working in that field. Um, it can be done safely. Uh, and, and we in the United States, have, have, we do it pretty safely. Um, there have been accidents, right? People think about Fukushima uh, and uh, Chernobyl. And in the U.S., we think about Three Mile Island. Um, so there's, there's room for improvement um, and there's room to continue to grow. But when you think about carbon-free... Um, electricity that's baseload. Uh, nuclear is the best option that we have available. I actually have a bigger issue with people that say go away from all fossil fuels, go away from nuclear, and just try and rely on um, renewables entirely uh, because uh, there are times where renewables aren't producing uh, energy. And it, it's at those times exactly that we need energy often. Um, an example is uh, last uh, last fall, we had a multi-day power outage due to an ice storm uh, that caused a bunch of equipment damage. Uh, and, you know, I, I was still at the power company at the time. They were working as diligently as they could. Um, and actually, the nuclear power plant was still up. But there are a whole host of problems that come along with that. So we need that baseload uh, that's reliable, the electricity that can be always on uh, at any time. Um, and that provides a reliable source of electricity. Currently, the best options we have are natural gas and uh, nuclear power. Uh, I think nuclear has the option to do that baseload with, um, uh, with less carbon. So in addition to, we do need renewables as well, but they're just part of the mix. So I see videos all the time of, you know, oh, the, the dirty secret of the electrical car industry is they're mining these gigantic things over in China or wherever it is they're doing it. Is the electric car industry and different things actually as helpful as we may assume it is? Um, well, the electric in, uh, car industry 
in part depends on where does the power come from, right? So uh, if, if if we're primarily burning fossil fuels in order to create the electricity, um, then the net marginal gain is, is kind of um, not huge, uh, depending on how and where all the heavy metals uh, go and all the where they come from for for uh, for the uh, the batteries. So I haven't dug too far into supply chain uh, and origin source for things like, um, uh, you know, like batteries. Uh, but there are open questions about that. And we do know of cases, you know, where there are uh, human rights abuses and really ecological dis disasters being caused by mining um, for some of these uh, heavy metals that have gone into different technologies like cell phones and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, there's there's room for caution there. I don't think electric vehicles are a panacea. Um, I think electric vehicles uh, have some potential, particularly for urban uh, people in urban and, and kind of close suburban settings. Um, but when I think about, you know, I grew up in a very rural area. Uh, we were, uh, you know, four or five miles from the nearest gas station uh, and the nearest city center, like in order to go to a Walmart was, was 12 miles when they finally put one in, which was when I was in, like, I think junior high. Um, so we would have to travel 45 minutes to go to a department, department store of any size, like the mall for school shopping. Um, I think about those situations and, you know, the winters that we had and having your electrical supply and uh, source of motive power uh, in, you know, uh, with combustible fluid in your, your internal combustion engine uh, was sometimes a very important thing uh, for how we, how we got along. When I think about farmers, um, you know, electric tractors um, are... Uh, a challenge for me to to believe are going to be effective, not just because of the charging, but because of, you know, what are you going to do when you run out of power and you're, you're uh, uh, you know, quarter mile or two miles from home, right? There's a whole set of issues there. So I don't think that electric vehicles are the panacea that some people think they are. I do think they have some uh, opportunities. And as we continue to grow, all technologies are bad at first and they improve over time. Um, we need to continue to think about how we're going to use them, how we're going to build infrastructure and, and uh, for them uh, and use them, uh, you know, in the future. So the last thing I want to ask you relates to pastors and uh, how they can talk about creation care well. Is there, should they be incorporating these ideas into sermons or into discussion groups or into other formats or venues? Or is this something that would... Um, not be wise to bring into those situations or or circumstances. So uh, I'm a big fan of exegetical expositional preaching, uh, which means that you deal with topics as they come up, um, and but also that you also you're as you preach in particular. Like I would handle a Sunday school class differently than I would handle a sermon. Um, you know, during a sermon, as someone who preaches uh, periodically, uh, I'm I've got a limited time and limited space. I'm going to focus on the biggest things and try and communicate uh, those things that are closest to the center of whatever the text is that I have to deal with. Um, creation care, even though I wrote a book on it, and I hope everybody buys it. But creation care is a second order issue, 
right? Um, it, it comes beyond behind some of those other things. Uh, it's important because second order doesn't mean it's unimportant, uh, but it, it it's not central to the gospel. It's an implication of the gospel. And so, you know, I would be very careful as a pastor uh, in making creation care a central plank of my ministry. Um, it certainly should come up when we're talking about questions of stewardship. If I'm if I'm talking about cultural mandate because I'm preaching preaching through Genesis chapter one, uh, then creation care is is definitely an issue. Um, when I'm dealing with some of the way that you know, if I'm preaching through some of the Old Testament laws regarding warfare and not destroying orchards in a um, in a in a land that you're invading. Right. That's that's a there's a creation care aspect to that that I would I would feel perfectly free in touching on. Um, But I wouldn't reach out and try and drag that in or even really make that the central plank of any given sermon uh, that I'm preaching. Um, On the other hand, you know, it does arise from the text. It does arise from Christian theology. Therefore, um, at least the theology and the basic principles of creation care should come out, uh, probably more in Bible study, uh, but sometimes through our sermons and the way that we teach, because part of our goal as leaders within the church is to help people to live righteous lives in in everything that they do, um, whether that's the way they they you know parent their kids or the way they do their work or you know the way that they you know they they uh, engage in sex or the way that we treat create creation and so that's all part and parcel of our mission. So where it's appropriate, I absolutely would would teach on it. Awesome. Well, this has been great. So. For those of you, just a reminder, the, the book we've been talking about is Hope for God's Creation, Stewardship in an Age of Futility. And it is available now. You can go to Amazon or wherever you buy your books from, if it's your local bookshop or, or, or wherever. Get a copy of it, um, read it, engage it. Uh, hopefully it'll make you think. As you can tell, um, Andrew's uh, done a, a significant amount of work thinking about these things. and He's got a lot of real-world experience. Um, he's not a frou-frou uh, guy who's just out here trying to like put out these like um, like fluffy platitudes. He's actually done done the homework, his homework, and he's got the experience in the like. Uh, when I think nuclear power plant, I think very masculine men. So like, you, no one can fault you for being this emasculated guy who's out here just trying to like rally people to creation care. There's actual real theological depth to it and uh, reason to think well about this. So. Andrew, thanks for talking about, with us about this. Quick reminder, if people want to follow your work and what you're doing, is there a, a good place that they can go? So uh, I review a lot of books, and I write uh, posts periodically at ethicsandculture.com. And then I, I'm, I am the book review editor at the Gospel Coalition, so feel free to follow along there, and I'm selecting and, and promoting uh, things through that platform as well. Excellent. So if I find any book reviews that I don't like, I will make sure to uh, direct everybody to you. Not kidding. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing this. This has been great. We appreciate it. And for everybody who's been listening uh, and tuning in, we appreciate you all uh, keeping up with the London Lyceum. And we'll talk to you guys soon, as this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.